0: Would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to continue our walk through this wonderful portion of the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6. Let us read verses 10 through 13, and I'd like you to stand if you can. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Please be seated. Father, once again we come before you as needy children. And that's what you love the most, needy children. And we come to you because you are the source of all that we need And you are very benevolent, you're very gracious, and you love giving good gifts to your children. So this morning we cry out for bread, the bread of heaven. Give us your word. And we know that you will not give us a stone or a serpent, but you will give us what we need. So please help us. Help me to be faithful. I pray that you would protect my mouth, my heart. Help me to be a faithful slave. Help my, my words to be changed to the Word of God. And I pray that this congregation will be faithful in how they listen and apply the truths of your Scripture. Lord, we pray for other churches also. I pray that your Holy Spirit be working and growing your flock in this area. We want to see your church strong, Lord, strong in you, especially in this dark place where we are. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Ah, uh, It was Major Sherman, He was a Major General Sherman Miles in 1948, July of 1948, he wrote about was an article entitled Pearl Harbor in retrospect Pearl Harbor in retrospect and the Atlantic published and had a subtitle and the subtitle was the former head of the Army's military intelligence division Reflects on how the US underestimated the Japanese military power the question was how could the US be so unprepared for the Japanese attack killing over 2,000 people. And in this article he writes, he says, Pearl Harbor struck a country satiated, satiated with war's alarms. True, we had put through the draft and had actually reached the shooting stage with German submarines, but as a people we were still talking of war without really accepting its imminence, then into our national complacency came a surprise blow at our strongest point. We underestimated Japanese military power. The article article goes on to say, Japanese ability to attack Hawaii or alternately Panama or the west coast was primarily a naval problem related to the navy unfortunately our navy underestimated japanese sea and sea air power even more than we in the army underestimated the efficiency of their land and air forces and we can learn some very practical lessons from this into the life of the church because we can know we can know all about spiritual warfare Right? They knew about war. They knew that there was a war. We have heard about war. Alarms, drafts, and yet be caught in a way that you are unprepared. Not prepared to deal with the reality of war. We cannot underestimate the power and cruelty of of our enemy. Amen? That's the problem. When you underestimate the power of your enemy... We ought not, we must not live under the psychology of peace when we are in war. We must be always alert and ready. And if you think about especially spiritual warfare, <laughs> you cannot hear, you cannot listen to the enemy coming. You don't hear the sound of tanks, airplanes. So it's very tempting for us to do what? Neglect, sleep. And that's the great danger that we face in spiritual warfare. So, we need to know our enemy. We need to know the source of our enemy, how he attacks, who our enemy is. Amen? And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's giving us all that we need Know about our enemy and not only our enemy but even our own sources. So, the outline is just following what we saw last Lord's Day the source of our power, the source of our, our armor, and then the source of our battle. So, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 because right now in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul turns the letter into the practical. Do you remember what I said? from. The doctrinal now to the practical aspect, to the duty, from the orthodoxy to the orthopraxy. And you can see how chapter 4 starts, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So now it starts how we must walk our lifestyle in light of what the, the Lord has done on our behalf. There is a lifestyle that must match with the work of the Lord in our lives. And still in chapter 4, Paul beautifully des- describes, he's talking about the church and what the Lord has done for the church. He says, "But grace. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean? But, but that He had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And then he goes on to say that he gave gifts to the church to equip the saints and to the work of ministry for building. I like what Frank Thielman says. He writes, The Messiah ascended a figurative Mount Zion, as Paul is saying, that he ascended. In a triumphal march after the defeat of his enemies, and God's people have shared in his triumph. Now, Paul urges his readers to defend the position that the Messiah has won for them by putting on the armor of God and standing firm against the devil and other invisible evil powers. And that's why we must remember that already, but not yet, yes, he has already ascended. He has Victory on our behalf, but still we have fights and battles until the consummation when He returns and the glorification of all things. Amen? So, let's move through the verses here and just very quickly, just as a review of what we saw. Verse 10, and that's the source of our power. And Paul says, he opens this section here, the final section. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. you remember, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. That's a call from the Old Testament. Do you remember who was often called to be strong? Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be strong. He's about to go to war. He's about to... Fulfill the Lord's duty on his life. And there is the call to go and be strong. And now there is a change now under the new covenant because we are strong in the Lord and we have different battles. Amen? The battles have changed. It's beautiful how Zechariah puts in Zechariah chapter 10, he says, verses 6 through 7, and then verse 12, he says, coming in the days of the Messiah. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior. Look at where Paul is borrowing all this metaphor and this language. I will make them strong in the Lord. That was the great expectation of the old covenant. And Paul applies to the church now under the New Covenant. And then he says, be strong in the Lord, and what else? And in the strength of His might, in the strength of His might, or in the might of His power, depending on the translation that you have. And those same Greek words that Paul is using here, he used earlier, and I don't have here, but he used earlier, and you can see in chapter 1, turn with me to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 19, when Paul is saying that he's praying for them, he wants the Lord to open the eyes of the Ephesians so they can know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might. The same two Greek words that Paul used here in chapter 6, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Paul is saying that we must find our power, our strength in the Lord and in particularly in his resurrection power. Those words are related to the resurrection. And it's beautiful how Paul... You study Paul, and when he's talking about the power of God, the, the strength, the, the the majestic might of our Lord, he always goes to the resurrection. For Paul, the greatest display of God's power was not in creation. Primarily, was not always the flood under Noah. It wasn't with the exodus. wasn't with the drowning of the Egyptians. wasn't with the rescue from the Babylonian captivity. The greatest power in Paul's mind when he thinks about God's power is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's when the enemy was conquered. That's when the last enemy was conquered. Through the resurrection of Jesus. So it's beautiful how Paul puts here. And then he moves on to give us the source of the armor. So he says, put on the whole armor of God. And that's The sentence here, to put on the whole armor, is how we are going to be strong in the Lord. He says, put on the whole armor of God. And there is a a genitive, a possessive there. It belongs to God. It's God's armor. He gives to His people, and that's the same armor that He wears for His battles. And we just need to pay attention when He says, put on the whole armor of God. We're going to talk more about that later. But he's talking to the whole church, that's in the plural. A lot of times we read, especially in the English language, there's no distinction between the "you singular" and the "you plural, but in the Greek and many other languages you have, and what he's saying is the "you plural, you all, all together, put on the whole armor. It's for all of us together to be fighting these battles. It's not for loners. Lone Rangers. No, it's the whole church together. And then we saw all these things. So let's move to the source of our battles. Now Paul is going to identify our enemy. He says, But on the whole arm of God, here's the reason, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of whom? The devil. The devil. And now you remember that the devil, think about the Lord God. He has many names throughout the Scriptures. Right? Remember all the names that God has in the Scriptures? So the same thing with Satan. So the, na- the many names of God reveal His beautiful, His glorious, His majestic character. And the many names of Satan reveal what? His nasty, cruel, loathsome, gruesome character also. And we saw, we saw that last Lord's Day. We saw He's the devil, Diabolos pertaining to engagement in slander, he loves his slander, slandering others. His name is also Satan, the adversary. He's the evil one. Think about an evil person. When you think about an evil person, then you think about Satan. Satan is the embodiment of all that's evil, and an evil person is just a reflection of, A small reflection of all the evil that is in Satan. Satan is the evil one. What is something evil? Remember, what is evil? Evil is something completely opposite of good, beautiful, holy, loving, right? And that's Satan. He's the evil one. Jesus calls him the evil one. Deliver us. Jesus says, deliver us from the evil one in the Lord's Prayer. He's also known as the Leviathan. He's also known as the dragon. He is the serpent. Reveals his, his character as a cunning deceiver. He's deadly and cunning, just like a serpent. He's Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. He's known as the tempter. Jesus calls him the tempter. He's known as Apollyon, the destroyer. He's the father of lies. He's the thief. He's the murderer and so many other names that reflect his nasty character. And we need to know that. We need to know the names of our enemy. Because his names reveal his character and how he acts. And so Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And look, look at the word against. Look at You can see in your Bibles... Verse 11, to stand against, for we do not wrestle against, but against, 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 against. What is Paul doing here? Bringing emphasis. When you repeat something, it's to bring emphasis. And the emphasis here is that we have an an adversary who is against us. He hates us. He's hostile towards us. When you have somebody against you, what does it mean? That that person is not for you, and that's exactly what Paul is trying to teach us by repeating against, against, against." There is opposition. And he says, "For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, or blood and flesh," the order in the Greek. The word wrestle is very important. That's the ESV, or if you have the NIV, you have struggle. For we do not wrestle. Pale means to engage in intense struggle involving physical, or if we're dealing with spiritual, non-physical force against strong opposition, to struggle, to fight. And you've got to remember that in ancient times, war, how was the war? If you went to battle with your enemy, how did you fight the battles? Would you fight the battles through the office with your computer sending bombs far away? No, you'd engage, they would go to battle in hand-to-hand combat, right? You watch movies with ancient warfare and battles, how do they fight? I know many of you have watched Gladiator, don't try to... (laughs) I know, many of you like Gladiator, and you like Gladiator, one of the reasons is the scenes of the, the battles... And how is that? They are close to each other. Or the Lord of the Rings too, right? Hand-to-hand combat. That's how it was in ancient times. And that's what Paul is telling us here. The wrestle reminds us that's a close battle. Not like you can just click a button and send a bomb into somebody's house or home. No. You had to be close to each other. you smell each other. You could feel the blood from each other, the sweat from each other. That's just like wrestling. If you have a wrestle, you know how nasty it is. And that's what Paul is painting here. We we have this battle and it's not far away. It's pretty close to us. The involvement. The word struggle or wrestle is a fitting word for the Christian life. It was Warren Wearsby who said, Sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground, and that he faces an enemy who is much stronger than he is apart from the Lord. Amen. The Christian life is not a playground for little kids. The Christian life is often pictured as a battleground for soldiers who know the outcome. It's gonna be suffering and pain. So, for example, in First Timothy six twelve, Paul says, Fight the good fight of the faith. And sadly, many Christians and many churches in America treat the Christian life as a picnic at the park. It's all about what? Thinking about your savings, vacation, properties to purchase, retirement, forgetting that this life here is much more than these things was Spurgeon who said, To be a Christian is to be a warrior. The good soldier of Jesus Christ must not expect to find ease in this world. It's a battlefield. Neither must he reckon upon the friendship of the world, for there will be enmity against God. His occupation is war. As as he puts on piece by piece of the panoply provided for him, he may wisely say to himself, This warns me of danger. This tells me of danger. This prepares me for warfare. This prophesies opposition. Huh. That's what Spurgeon tells us. And we are not passive as spectators, but aggressive participants in this drama of war. And that's why Paul says, Our struggle. Not your struggle, but our struggle. Why? Because we are all involved in this. Our struggle. Our. It's not only mine, it's our together. Amen? So he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Notice the expression there, For we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. Yes. Uh, What does it mean we don't wrestle against flesh and blood? I'm pretty sure that what Paul is saying here is that we don't wrestle. And he's talking primarily about people, created beings like us, earthly men and women. Uh, You think about the old covenant when they went to battle and they went to fight. They fought against who? The Canaanites, the Jebusites. So they would be fighting the war under the old covenant was against flesh and blood. Under the new covenant, Paul is saying, no 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 there there is a much deeper war and greater enemy that we are facing here. It's very tempting. It's very tempting to think that our primary and ultimate enemy is the one who is slandering is us, who is attacking us, who is being evil towards us, and Paul is reminding us that no. And especially You think about the church in the first century. You think about Christians in Ephesus and in other places. They would be tempted to think that their enemy was not Satan, but was the Roman Empire or the Roman soldiers. And the same with Christians suffering in other places. So it's tempting to think that the problem is their greatest enemy is the government or whoever is persecuting them. And Paul is reminding all of us here that the greatest problem is actually behind those people. There's something much greater, much more sinister sinister behind these people. But when Paul says that our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, he's not saying that human beings are not part of the, the warfare. He's not saying that people are excused, that they have no part to play in this war, by no means. I like what one scholar says. He says, none of this is to deny that there are earthly counterparts or manifestations, so to speak, of these beings. Nor is it to deny that the effect or of their rule inevitably it manifests itself in sinful desires and actions within human beings and human institutions. So yes, so our great enemy manifests himself through other people, other institutions. So for example, in Matthew 16:23, Matthew Matthew remember, Peter confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. And then Jesus says that he's going to suffer. What does Peter say? By no means. The Messiah cannot suffer. What does Jesus tell him? Get behind me, Satan. And it's not that Peter is possessed by Satan, by demons. No. But he's being used as an instrument of Satan to deny the necessity of suffering in the life of the Messiah. That's very important. Satan uses people as his instruments and spokesman of evil, pain, slander. Think about the Apostle Paul when he was beaten. Who was beating him? People. Soldiers. Jewish people. When Paul was stoned, who was throwing the stones on Paul? Those were not spiritual, invisible stones, no. He had hands, he had stones, he had people, flesh and blood stoning him. When Paul was slandered and false accusedly, who was doing that? He had people doing that. But we need to remember that behind all these actions, there is a greater and more evil power behind these people. So, yes, people will hurt us, but we've got to always remember that behind that there is an enemy who loves destroying and hurting and killing people. Amen? So Paul is not denying the reality that real men and real women cause us pain and they're instruments of Satan. But he sees something much darker and more sinister than just men. There is satanic powers behind their actions. And then Paul goes on to describe this demonic army look at he says for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers against authorities against cosmic powers of this present darkness against spiritual forces in the heavenly places so paul is just he used a lot of words that's how paul does to describe the demonic powers and we need to be careful here because so many christians they come to this verse here and they suddenly they start trying to come up with all sorts of doctrines of demons, and they try to create all sorts of uh, arrangement within the satanic realm that's not in the Bible. So, we need to be very careful with carnal speculations and man's imagination where the Bible lacks further revelation. Amen? We need to be very careful with creating all sorts of ranks and positions where the Bible is not that clear. I agree with Stephen Fowl when he says, Paul's point here is not to produce a precise list of the species that inhabit the heavenly realm, but to signify the vast multiplicity of demonic forces allied against the church. Or similarly, Brian Chappell, I like how he puts it, he says, Paul's varied language in his writings also cautions us against delineating a labeled hierarchy of demonic forces. Rather, his purpose is broadly to remind readers of the spiritual battle that rages in the heavenlies and wars against us. Christ's triumph over these forces is assured and inaugurated, verse 21 of chapter 1, even if during these evil days, before the consummation of Christ's triumph, the believer must act wisely and be careful not to give the devil a foothold. So, the Walpole's picture here is that Satan, the evil one, the devil, he has an army of demons. He's not just one, he has a host of demonic forces. Uh, Paul has a rich vocabulary. It's, it's the opposite of the gospel. So when you go through the gospels, you just hear about demons and evil spirits or unclean spirits, right? When you read the gospel, somebody's possessed by a demon or somebody's possessed by an unclean spirit. That's the vocabulary in the gospels. But when you come to Paul, he has a rich vocabulary because he's using the vocabulary of the Gentiles. He's bringing and applying and expanding so they can see. So Paul talks about principalities, authorities, powers, dominions, thrones, angels, rulers, world, ruler, world rulers, and the elemental spirits. So all the vocabulary that Paul used for these different, different names for the host of Satan. So you have rulers and authorities against this cosmic, look at what Paul says, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Huh, the cosmic powers. Literally, the rule world world rulers, and that's rulers who rule over worldly people, people who belong to this world system. And he says that this present darkness, and darkness reminds you of what God is is light. With Him there is no darkness. So they are the completely opposite of God. It's a kingdom of darkness. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So that's where we were before. And that's why it's called the spiritual warfare. Look how Paul says, Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So That's why it's called the spiritual warfare. And when Paul talks about spiritual, that doesn't mean that spiritual has nothing to do with physical or material. But in the Bible, when you think about heavenly or spiritual, that's one sphere, that's one realm. So in Genesis 1, we hear that God created the heavens and the earth. And one sense, God created the heavenly realms and then He created the earthly realm. And in the heavenly realm we have the angels that God created. He created the angels. And this heavenly realm, this spiritual realm, you think, is not somewhere out there, it's we cannot see, but it's acting in continuous and together with what's taking in the earthly sphere, in the earthly realm. And God created the spiritual or the heavenly realm beautiful, as good just like the earthly realm. But in the heavenly realm, we had the fall of Satan with his angels, with his demons, and in the earthly realm, we had the fall of Adam. And that's what Christ comes to do, to restore both of these realms. And that's why He has conquered the heavenlies. He's seated in the heavenlies. He has taken captive and there is the inauguration, but there is also, we are waiting for the consummation of this great victory that Christ has. So, it's just, it's a deep subject. It's hard for us to, to grasp, but we need to understand that there is a spiritual, there is this heavenly realm that God created that was good, that was beautiful. And with the fall of Satan, that was affected also, was contaminated by Satan and his angels. And they have, they act they act with the earthly realm, amen it's not it's sometimes because we cannot see it it's tempting to think that it doesn't exist, but it's not because we cannot see that it doesn't exist. The Bible is very clear the reality of these things and then he talks about the this nasty enemy that we have, Satan and his Hosts. They're just like animals, wild animals who are always cunningly cornering and trying to stalk the prey and attack God's people. And the devil and his hosts, one of the major weapons is the Word. Think about that the Word. God's greatest weapon is his Word. And Satan tries to mimic him by using the word. So Satan rules through his word. He's tempting, he's deceiving, he's accusing word which leads to death. Satan rules over his kingdom of darkness through his deceitful word that brings death. That's the opposite of God who rules his people with his word and brings life into his people. So our enemy and his cohort of evil spirits have no code of honor, no decency, no, no moral principles. They're nasty, ruthless, filled with all different schemes to destroy us. And what I want to do now, just to move on and kind of help all of us with something very practical, I want to give you some of the weapons that Satan and his cohort and his army Often he used against the church. The first one is temptation. Temptation. He's called the tempter. He used his words to tempt people. In First Corinthians seven five, First Corinthians seven five, Paul says, "Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a, a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you." Because of your lack of self-control. So you see that Satan will use the lack of the god giving intimacy between husband and wife to tempt them to sin. That's what Satan does. And he's going to try to throw words, images, to try to take you, to lure you to sin against your spouse. That's what Satan will do. So you see that even a healthy, intimate relationship between a husband and a wife is a weapon against Satan. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says in verses 14 and 15, he says, So I would have the younger widows to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for his slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Very similar saying. No, marry. Get together. Let your marital union help you against Satan. Satan also loves using anger, bitterness, an unforgiving heart. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, So 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11, you have Paul there dealing with a brother in the church who had sinned against Paul first, and then he asked for forgiveness, he repented. Paul forgave him, and now he's telling the church to also forgive that man. So he says, Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. And what Paul is saying here is, I have forgiven him, he has repented, and now you need to forgive him and be alert of Satan's schemes. And that's very similar to what he tells to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, 26-27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's fascinating, if you think about Ephesians, of all the commands that Paul is giving here to the church, that's the only one he mentions the devil. Huh? That's the only one that he mentions the devil. F.F. Bruce, he writes, he notes how one of Satan's schemes is his readiness to exploit strained relations and angry feelings between believers so as to damage their personal or corporate welfare and witness. Angry, unforgiving, bitter. That's a, a massive foothold for Satan. Not only that, the temptation to have more and more. Satan loves tempting us to be not satisfied with what the Lord has given us. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9-10, through 10, "...but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation." into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. A greedy heart. Why? Greed is idolatry. That's what Paul is saying. Then he goes on to say, Having what you wear, having what you eat, we should be satisfied, be content with the Lord. We must train and teach ourselves to be content in the Lord. We will fall into the temptation of longing to be rich when we stop treasuring Christ and the gospel. And the the the, the thing is we are surrounded and bombarded all the time to be not content. We need to have more, we need to buy more, we need to have more, we need to buy more never satisfied with what the Lord has given us. The gospel and greed, the ESV, Gospel Transformation Study Bible says, the gospel and greed are mutually exclusive. You cannot serve God in money. Let those who claim the gospel and who revel in grace, who love grace and want to be rich, beware. The greatest riches in the universe are in Christ and in the gospel that proclaim His grace to us. Amen. So the temptation to be rich. Another one, lies. Satan will attack us with lies. He's the father of lies. And he will use people to lie. And a lot of times people who are not expecting, he will use these people to lie. So Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So, we need to be aware. Lies. Satan loves attacking people with lies. He's the father of lies. Another aspect is slander. His name means the slanderer. He loves slandering others. He loves using slander as his weapon. Just behold the world of social media. How much slander goes on through social media? How much slander goes on through social media? And the devil loves. That's his party place. Social media is a channel of slandering. People think they can just go and slander through typing words. One scholar says, One of Satan's ploys as a deceiver is to bring unwarranted accusations against the people of God. In Revelation 12.10, he is referred to as the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. He adopts the role of prosecuting attorney who stands before the divine judge to argue that believers are unworthy of God's grace and deserve nothing but punishment. Know that that is our brothers, members of the Christian community, who are the objects of his accusation. And Satan will not only bring accusations and slander against us before God, but before each other. He loves slandering, he loves bringing seeds of doubts. And we need to be careful. Don't entertain rumors without evidence. Don't entertain rumors without evidence, because that's what he loves. Slanderous accusation. they're not true. Another one. I have more to say, but we don't have time. Suffering and persecution. Suffering and persecution. Satan will use suffering and persecution to attack the church. The books of Job and Revelation are very revealing about Satan's strategy. And war of weapon as suffering and persecution. And a lot of times we don't think about illness and pain and suffering as a satanic attack, but it is. So for example, in Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, Jesus speaks of the healing of a woman as her release from the chains of Satan. There was a woman with problems in her back. And Jesus heals her and says that she has been delivered from the bonds of Satan. Peter, he summarizes Jesus' ministry with these words. That Jesus, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And Jesus went about doing good. And look at that. Healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Of course, not every single illness and Sickness is a direct act of Satan, but somehow it's connected to Satan because of the fall. Amen? So somehow it's connected to Satan because of the fall. But there are times when Satan will attack us, and the Lord will allow him to attack us, our physical bodies, our health. And a lot of times we forget about that. We, we neglect that. but It's something that we have throughout the Scriptures. So much of mental illness today, and you read the Scriptures, is the fruit of demonic activity. So much of mental illness today is the fruit of demonic activity. You read the Scriptures and how people under the oppression and uh, under the the influence and the possession of demonic forces, you see how they act. And you look around us, go for a walk downtown, and you're going to see so many people full of demons, And we tend to ignore that. We think if you give money to them, they're going to get better. If you can give better housing to them, they're going to get better. These people are full of demons. They need the gospel of Christ. About persecution. Satan was not only behind, but inside Judas in order to bring the suffering of Christ According to John, chapter 8, the hostility of the Jewish leaders is the fruit of their filiation to Satan. And filiation here is their sonship, their kids of Satan. So that's why Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and your will should do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Or... Jesus tells Peter in Luke chapter 22, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Meaning, Satan has asked us the permission to harm you and hurt you and destroy you. I like what David Garland writes. He says, the you is plural. It makes no sense to sift only one corn stalk. And Peter is not the only one who will be sifted. It implies violent shaking in this case to separate them from Jesus and to eliminate them from salvation. Satan in his arrogance sets out to bring the faithful crashing down. That's his goal, to destroy. John chapter 17, 15, look at Jesus' prayers for his people. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but they, what? but that you keep, that you protect them from whom? The evil one. Because he will harm, he will hurt his people. Peter tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls like around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Look at the language. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In Revelation also, we see Satan. Look at what Jesus says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you have tribulation. even Satan behind the arresting of God's people. And the book of Revelation is fascinating because the major theme of Revelation is the lordship of Jesus, how he is on the throne, he's ruling everything, he's in charge of everything, but that does not deny the other reality that Satan is still active. And hurting his church. That's very important to keep in mind. Or in Revelation chapter 12, you can open there, Revelation chapter 12. And that's a a glorious chapter in Revelation chapter 12, where we have Jesus conquering the dragon. He cast the dragon down. And then look at verse 12. Says therefore, chapter twelve, twelve. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is what short. One scholar writes, Sidney Page. He writes, having been conquered in the heavenly, in the heavenly realm, Satan directs his ven- his venom against God's people on earth. Here John is showing his readers that even though Christ's coming has resulted in the devil's being vanquished he's too active and his rage is now directed at those who obey God's commandments and who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christians must, must expect to come under satanic attack and to be persecuted and that's what chapter 13 will show us in Revelation is how Satan or the dragon will attack And then he has two major instruments. If you remember, he brings the beast that comes out of the sea. And then he has the false prophets who come out of the land to attack God's people. Those are just some of the ways that the Bible shows us of our enemy and his schemes against us. And we must be alert. Do you remember how we opened the sermon, talk about Pearl Harbor? They underestimated the power of the enemy. Underestimated, And we cannot underestimate the power of our enemy. It's very tempting, especially for us in reform camp, in the form, reform theology, to go to an extreme where we exalt so much the sovereignty and the power of God that we completely ignore and reject and minimize the power of Satan. And we cannot do that. That's not biblical. Yes, we keep emphasizing the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the beauty, the, ma- the majesty of God. He's over all. But we cannot deny the reality that we still have an enemy. And one of His greatest weapons is to attack, to hurt, to cause us to suffer. And we need to understand that. In our last sermon, we ended to talk about how we win. We win by our union with Christ because Christ has conquered. And as we think about all these attacks, all this demonic oppression and, and This whole army coming against the church, we must always be mindful of how we fight, how we battle. And also, once again, we need to look to Christ. Why? Satan loves lies. So how do we fight? How did Jesus fight? The truth. The truth. Satan loves an unforgiving, a bitter heart. How did Jesus act? With a forgiving heart, merciful, compassionate. And I think above all, you think, how did Jesus conquer the battle? How did He conquer the war? On a cross, through suffering, through pain. Look at Colossians. Turn with me and that's the last passage. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And Paul says, verse 13, And you who were dead in your, tresp- in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him by having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This He set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, or on the cross. That's how Christ conquered. By suffering, hanging upon a cross. One scholar says, although Christ's work on the cross is a finished work, it still needs to be appropriated and consummated. Christians do not contribute to Christ's atoning victorious work, but are taken up into it. Beyond using the armor of God, the clearest statement on how Christians are involved in the defeat of Satan comes in Revelation 12:11, And they, referring to Christians, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. The army of Christians defeats Satan in the same that their commander does. Through witness and suffering, although paradoxical, it should not surprise us that a kingdom established by suffering would be advanced through similar means. So Paul says in Second Corinthians twelve. Let me, but here Second Corinthians twelve, the Lord when he's asking the Lord to remove the thorn of his flesh, the Lord says, "My grace is sufficient for you." For what? My power. Same Greek word, be in power in the Lord. For my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities, for when I'm weak, then what? I'm strong. That's how we win the battles. So as Satan is attacking, causing us to suffer, we embrace the life of Christ and we suffer like Christ. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that we are more than conquered in the tribulations, in the distress, in the persecution, in the famine, in the naked, in the danger, in the sword. It's in these things that we conquer in Christ because that's how he conquered power through weakness. Amen? So, the words of Luther, the body they may kill, God's truth abides to And yes, we do have a very cruel, cold, ruthless enemy. His pleasure is our harm. We've got to keep that in mind. He hates churches. He hates Faithful church. He will attack faithful families. He will strive to destroy, to bring harm and pain and slander and persecution. We are frail and weak, but we have a Lord who surrounds us. We have a Lord who surrounds us with his angels, who hold us in his arms. So we say, Rise up, O Lord, and he will flee before our sovereign God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory be to our God. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for alerting us, for giving us the revelation that we need about our enemy. Lord, help us to not underestimate the power of the enemy, but help us to be alert, be sober minded as a church. And help us to, to go through the warfare and through the battles clothed with Christ. Help us to act like Jesus, our Lord and Commander. And help us to understand that it's through suffering, through pain, that we conquer. Just like our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So rise up, O Lord, and help us. Surround us with Your angels. And give us the strength and the grace to put on the full armor every day as a church. And help us to not underestimate the power of the enemy. But help us to have a biblical balance of all the truth they have given us. Yes, He's cruel, He's ruthless, He's a nasty enemy. But we have a beautiful and powerful Lord over us. For those who are not in Your army, Lord, I pray that You drag them this morning. Change their hearts. As we read in First Peter Take them out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them to the kingdom of light so they may find joy and have the greatest battle over. And that's the battle against You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.